I always try to cover a lot of territory on this podcast. I dig into the evolution of finance, of business management, but also economics. I'm endlessly fascinated by the way big macroeconomic themes like debt and interest rates can affect individuals like you and me right here in the real world. So it's exciting to have Victor Schwetz on the show today. He not only runs Macquarie Bank's office in Hong Kong, but he's also written a book. It's called The Great Rupture, Three Empires, Four Turning Points and the Future of Humanity. It's an impressive read. It pulls together history, economics, geopolitics, and even a little bit of psychology to try and map how the missteps of key empires in the past can help us prepare for a very uncertain future. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and whether the stock market will ever be the same again. Now, Victor doesn't shy away from the big issues in his book, and we cover it all in this episode. He offers one of the best explanations I've heard for the origins and the impacts of the debt bomb that's been building ever since Alan Greenspan's infamous put that began pumping money into the financial system in response to the 1987 stock market crash. And while the debt continues to grow today, of course, the question is, when will the music stop? Now we go deep on this episode. We look at the history of China, its missed opportunities to globalize many centuries ago, and its rapid rise in the new information age. And I quiz Victor about whether our addiction to economic growth is compatible with a healthy environment. It seems clear that the financialization of our world means we've pushed beyond the carrying capacity of our ecosystem. So can we step away from the brink before it's too late? Now, I really enjoyed this chat with Victor. He's generous with his time and he's a deep thinker. So I hope you get as much out of it as I did. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. And you can also find a link to Victor's book and links to the many recommendations he made at the end of the episode over there on the website as well. All right, let's do it. Here's my chat with Victor Schwetz. Here we go. Victor Schwetz, it's great to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time. So thank you for calling in from Hong Kong. Uh, Thank you, John. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be on your program. Well, look, after reading your latest book, I have a lot of questions. My mind is reeling. You covered so much ground. But to get us started today, the title of it is The Great Rupture. So has the rupture happened or is it still ahead of us? Uh, It's already occurring as we speak. Uh, Most of the things that uh, I think individuals took for granted uh, in 80s and 90s um, and even 10 years ago, uh, already changing beyond recognition. Uh, That includes nature work, that includes its value, uh, that includes the functioning of markets and financial system and monetary system. Uh, That also includes... uh, the way corporates look at themselves, what the objectives are, as well as, of course, environmental and other concerns. In the book, you talk about the fourth industrial revolution, the new information age as being this huge disruptive force. Is that what has caused this rupture? 
the rupture is really caused by a fusion of uh, information age and technological evolution on the one side and a very deep financialization of our economies over the last three to four decades on the other. It's almost like a two hurricanes joining forces and really reshaping our entire political landscape, economic landscape, market landscape, pretty much everything else. I'm glad you brought that up, Victor. There's something that I did want to jump to. I sort of call it the debt bomb. You've mentioned it as financialization. It's something that I have brought up with other guests and few have been able to give me a really satisfying answer because maybe in my naivete, I've not been able to to ask the right question, but your book did give me some really great insight. So to get deeper into that, can you help my audience understand what changed in the 70s. Why does that period mark the beginning of what you call the financialization of our economy? Well, John, in uh, 1950s, 60s, and even in 1970s, um, our economies essentially demanded maybe $1, $1.50 of debt uh, for every dollar of GDP. But from 1980s, it's all changed. And eventually, we started to demand three, four, five dollars of debt. So in other words, we as a society sometime in 1980s decided that bringing future consumption to the present uh, and using asset prices as well as gearing and leverage is the only way we can accumulate income and wealth. So the key question I try to address in the book, why have we globally uh, as a society made that decision? Why have we decided to dramatically change how we finance ourselves, um, how do we uh, generate income or wealth? And the answer to me is that what happened in 1970s and 80s is that in most Western countries, productivity rates started to decline. The miracle of productivity of 50s, 60s, and 70s have gone into reverse. Uh, And as a result of lower productivity, we had to choose, do we want to have lower income and lower growth? Do we want to accept that our children might not quite have the same future as we do? Or are we going to generate income and wealth through means other than income, other than productivity? Uh, And the answer for us was leverage. Bring future consumption to the present. uh, And secondly, accumulate wealth through asset prices and leveraging. So houses that used to be the places where you will cook dinners and look after your children suddenly become an investable asset class. Suddenly, everybody from corporates to households were leveraging. But as I discussed in the book, uh, that sort of leveraging does have a very significant side effect. And over time, those side effects become very toxic. Well, toxic indeed. I mean, we talk about this being the requirement. This is the path for growth, but it's clearly not sustainable. And, and in you know very clear terms that when I mean, we look at the bond price from 1981 and it just goes up and up and up in line with interest rates going down and down and down and debt has exploded well look i shouldn't use that term debt has exploded because i think we're building the debt bomb we're building the bubble you know will it burst surely it's inevitable that, that it will burst and and that pain will be far greater than um, than slowly letting the air out of the balloon. Well, what we've been trying to do over the last three or four decades is to prevent it uh, from blowing up. And what we will continue trying to do over the next three to four decades, again, try to avoid it blowing up. 
So in other words, um, every time there is a dislocation, whether it's a Black Monday in 1987, whether it's uh, Asia-Pacific crisis in 97, whether it's dot-com in 2000, global financial crisis in 2008, or pandemic in 2020, every time we come to a T-junction and people are asked, would you like to restore liberal capitalism? Most people say, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, but then if you explain that that might imply that you would need to recognize that the houses you're living in and the house you've bought may be not worth the money you paid for it. Are you okay with that? Most people say, no, I'm not okay with that. Uh, you might raise a question. Uh, we have a lot of inefficiencies in the system. As interest rates continue to come down, many zombie companies survived. survived. The companies that should never have survived did so. Do you recognize that if we restore liberal capitalism, those companies will have to go bankrupt? Oh, no, no, I, I don't like that. Do you need to recognize, you do need to recognize that money supply for decades grew faster than nominal GDP. That means the difference between those two lines is, is your pension. The difference between those two lines are asset prices. Are you okay with your pension going down? And most people say no. So when, when a lot of commentators say it's a fault of Bernanke or it's a fault of Greenspan or Yellen or central banks, I basically say, look yourself in the mirror. You are the guilty party. Uh, you did not want to recognize any of the bad things and you want the politics to fix your problem. And the only way to fix the problem was to go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. So the question then becomes, over the next two or three or four decades, how do you either disarm that bomb or how do you uh, create new sets of policies that actually will enable you to continue to grow without generating the same amount of debt? Mm, I mean, it's an interesting one where, I mean, it's almost the individualism of capitalism, right? Saying, if you ask people, do they want more? Of course, they're going to say yes. But isn't there a role of our economists, of our policymakers, of even our central banks to, to understand better than the man on the street that continual growth, continual consumption, ever lower interest rates and ever more borrowing can't go on? I mean, is that, I guess you've said it, that there's a political impasse there, that it's passing the buck. Um, am I missing something there? Uh, no, you, you, you're absolutely right. And, and again, that's your generational change. Uh, if you think of 1968, 69, uh, 1970, and it's very difficult to delineate the eras, of course, but let's assume around 1970, that's where baby boomers become a very sizable part of the electorate in most developed countries. And baby boomers basically wanted freedom. Uh, they wanted choice. Uh, they wanted efficiency. Uh, they wanted the government to get off their faces and enable them to do whatever baby boomers felt they wanted to do. By late 1970s, that became the orthodoxy. Uh, and you find economic theory changed with it. So the economic theory of John Maynard Keynes or John Galbraith, which emphasized much more social aspects of our economies, have changed much more towards Milton Friedman, towards monetarism. It changed much more towards a quantitative economics rather than more social economics. Politics changed too. On the back of baby boomers, you had Ronald Reagan, you had Margaret Thatcher, you had uh, so the objective was whether you're on the left side of the politics, like a Labour Party, or on the right side of the politics, like conservatives or liberal Democrats or whoever that in different countries are, uh, what you had is that all of them, 
believed that the state and the government are evil, uh, that state and public sector are inefficient, uh, that private sector solutions are the best solutions, whatever your problem happens to be. And for the next three to four decades, that was a core of economic curricula in the colleges and universities. That was a core belief of political system. And in fact, that was a core belief of baby boomers. Now, the interesting thing is that over the last 10 years, millennials and Z generation started to become larger and larger part of the electorate. And increasingly, they're pulling society away from those concepts. Very similar to 1968 riots and Berkeley University, you know, burning and Malcolm X, all the things that was happening in late 60s are now replicated again. But this time, it's millennial and Z generations which are in, who are insisting on changing how our political system functions, what is the role of corporations, what is the role of private sector, what is the role of public sector. And the younger people are closer to their grand-grandparents than they are to their parents. I think there's one element there that you didn't bring up, and that's the environmental constraint. You know, you say from that financialization perspective that we now live in a, in a world of infinite capital. There's no scarcity and we have infinite scale, but surely that pushes up against ecological constraints. And I think that's really, to me, one of the leading, look, I, I, I hope that economics in a, in a more pure form would accept that there are these ecological constraints and that we'd have a balancing system and that price would come up to reflect scarcity of a certain natural resource. But it seems that this uh, blind demand for more from people on the street urged on by a political class that are happy just to give us what we want. But the thing that's suffering is the environment. And we're seeing it with climate change getting worse, with biodiversity loss. How do you factor that into this whole, this whole dilemma? It's interesting because everybody agrees uh, that climate is an important issue. Everybody agrees that the loss of biodiversity is tragic. Everybody agrees that we must protect our planet. Uh, the problem has been and the problem remains in how you balance against requirements of society to maintain certain standard of living, certain income growth, certain wealth growth, and how do you balance uh, against conflicting objectives that people have? Uh, in a sense, as you correctly said, people want everything. They do want high income. They do have, want to have wealth. They do want to protect the planet. They don't want to go into bankruptcy. They don't want to recognize that their houses are not worth uh, what they paid for them. And how do you find that sort of middle ground? Um, and I think uh, the beautiful, from my perspective, uh, the positive thing coming up on the horizon is that the role and objectives of public sector are shifting and changing. The role of corporations are shifting and changing. Societal campus is dramatically changing what it was even 15 10 to 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and so the entire social system is, is moving towards uh, less greed and more fairness. Uh, so if you think of Wall Street, uh, uh, you know, movie, Greed is Good, that was a classic baby boomer of 1980s. If you think of Madonna, you know, I'm a material girl, this is a classic baby boomer of 1980s. If you think of today, 
uh, neither of those concepts will really resonate uh, with most people. And within five to 10 years, Millennium and Z generation will be the majority of population of, the, of, of most developed countries. So that's what explains the popularity of the likes of Bernie Sanders or AOC or many other left-winning or left-leaning politicians. So, so to me, society is changing and eventually we will find the right balance between growth, private sector, public sector, uh, and the ecology, with the only proviso that that new world is not going to be classically liberal capitalism. And the reason for that is very simple. The need for human contribution, the need for human productivity is declining. Uh, our problem is not that we exploited. Uh, as Yuval Harari said, our problem is that we're becoming increasingly irrelevant. And as we're becoming increasingly irrelevant, and as capital also becomes increasingly irrelevant, you can't have liberal capitalism in the world when there is no need for capital and there is no need for uh, labor and humans to be the primary productivity drivers. So whatever coming up on the end of the other bridge in the next 20 or 30 years is not going to look classical capitalism. The only question is, will it look more like communism? Will it look more like feudalism? Will it more look more like despotism? Uh, what type of structure, how much freedom can we have? How can we protect environment while ensuring that we continue to enjoy a certain standard of living? And how can we function in an economy where people are no longer the primary productivity drivers? Wow, Victor, that's a huge leap. There's so much there. That's a, an economics course on its own. But I wonder just to bring that closer to home for people. I mean, I think a lot of people would hear, you know, what's he saying? We're going to end up running under communism just to satisfy the, the needs and wants of, of naive millennials. But I wonder, you know, and, and I myself am probably one of those naive millennials. And I mean, obviously, I think the word communist is thrown around too much and that there's uh, a lot of nuance in this balance. But you talk about the elements that are getting us there and the slow steps we're taking. And a key one is that central banks are now driving private markets. I think that's a really interesting point that people forget. I mean, would you suggest that central bank bailouts in, in 2008 and now amid coronavirus are a, a symptom of this and that that's leading us towards the government inevitably having a greater control and that perhaps that coupled with the new information age will mean that we can have innovation without the freedom that we hold so dear. Yes, uh, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, central banks essentially now determining both prices and volumes. If you determine price and quantity, why do you need prime dealers? Why do you need commercial banks? Why do you need any commercial intermediary? And the answer is you don't. So one of the toxic side effects of financialization that we have experienced is that gradually central banks can tolerate only zero volatility. And the reason for that uh, is that increasingly over the last three or four decades, people start taking cue from asset prices as far as their behavior is concerned. Would you like to save? Would you like to spend? Would you like to invest? All of that increasingly become driven by asset prices. Corporates are doing exactly the same calculation and saying, do I want to invest? Do I want to do share buybacks? All of that driven out of asset classes. If assets become so important 
then central banks cannot tolerate any volatility because as soon as volatility arrives, economic outcomes on the ground becomes incredibly distortionary. So central banks reacting to what you argue they have created over the last three to four decades or what people ask them to create in order to continuously create wealth and income that the society as a whole demanded over the last three to four decades without kind of recognizing the consequences uh, of what they are asking for. Um, At the same time, what you're seeing, uh, if you control the single most important price in economy, and that's a price of money, uh, it starts distorting uh, uh, other parts of the private sector. So, for example, uh, if you think of corporation, if suddenly um, interest rates are at zero, almost every project becomes viable. If almost every project becomes viable, they compete aggressively to get any returns at all. And so zero interest rates eventually ends up with zero returns to corporates. And so the only way they can deliver any growth is through self-liquidation, things like share buybacks. So eventually that system leads to uh, a decline uh, of uh, private sector as a whole. So you can argue information age, which reduced our productivity, information age, which is distorting the value of capital and labor, if combined with financialization that we have done over the last three to four decades, basically implies that the public sector becomes the dominant driver. Uh, And that's been the case for decades now and will continue to get stronger. And so the question is not whether you need to get the public sector out of the picture. The question is what role should public sector perform? Uh, And the conclusion increasingly is that if private sector is unwilling or unable to generate the types of growth rates that society demands, then it is responsibility of public sector to do that. And increasingly across Anglo-Saxon countries and other countries, that's becoming consensus. The other consensus that has emerged over the last decade, that it's not always true that public sector is inefficient. And it's not always true that private sector solutions are necessarily the best. If you accept those two variables, then it's a question how far would the public sector go, how much they will dominate our decision-making process, how much they will dominate our allocation of capital resources. Uh, And that in turn leads you to other questions. How much freedom uh, are we going to get in that system? How much do we need to sacrifice? Because one of the great things about baby boomers, they have created a lot of freedom, whether it's movement between countries, immigration, ability to marry or divorce anybody I like, ability to change jobs, ability to change occupations. They did create a lot of freedom. Uh, And so the question is how much of that freedom uh, would actually need to be sacrificed in the process as we adjust to much more public sector-driven economies. I mean, giving up freedom really is really is a hot-button issue. And, and I think I'd like to bounce back to that when we start to look at and discuss the early, uh, the first half of your book, which is all about three great empires that fell behind the West because they closed their borders and they didn't really push freedom and they didn't push innovation. That's a a massive issue and I'd love to talk about it. But just to stay on this issue 
of our current markets and where we're going to head with central banks having more control than ever. I mean, in the short term, it seems then that your, your book changed my perception and, and I started seeing corporations as the new centralizing body. That is, corporations get bigger, they then become a central party that, that's governing on their own. But what that means is that they are more obedient to government because they're so dependent on the capital that's coming from the central bank. I mean, are we already seeing that? Do you think that's already happening? And, you know, how will that play out? What will, will the next, what's your sort of foresight for the share market in the, in the next sort of two, three years? Do you think the bigger companies are just going to get bigger and they're just going to absorb more and more small companies and get closer to the government? There is a lot of issues there, John, that you brought up. One of the issues perhaps to highlight is that um, uh, corporations in 1950s and 60s also were very large and very dominant, but they viewed their responsibility much more socially. <clears throat> in other words, responsibility or a charter of corporation was to produce products, to look after society, to look after employment. Uh, profit was an outcome uh, of your societal function rather than the objective. Uh, as baby boomers took control of the economies and the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher came to power, Milton Friedman became dominant. The view very much in the 80s and 90s and part of the previous decade became that the only objective that corporations should have is profit maximization and return to shareholders. So in other words, a huge variety of tasks that corporations perform was reduced just to one objective, and that is just looking after the shareholders and generating the maximum possible return. What we have seen over the last couple of years, that corporations recognizing that that is no longer socially acceptable. So, for example, U.S. Roundtable changed in August 2019, only last year, changed and redefined the definition of corporate. If you read it, it goes back to 50s and 60s. Uh, and it basically says that we have a social responsibility. Now, that's a very substantial change. Now, a lot of people suggest it's just talk. It's the CEOs don't want to be poster childs for all the bad things that happen over the last three to four decades. And there is no doubt there is element of that. But I think it's deeper than that. It's not just a talk. U.S. Roundtable and most other business organization bodies change the definition of corporates very infrequently, usually once maybe every 15, 25 years. It's almost like a generational change. So one of the things you're seeing, John, is that we're seeing a transition, how corporate see themselves, much more in the mold of 50s and 60s. The other thing you brought up is that corporations are larger than they used to be. Now, the reason they are larger is that they're coming under attack from the new industries. Uh, 20 years ago, a corporation might have had maybe one or two competitors, maybe three. Today, they wake up every morning and technology or technological platforms which have almost unlimited scale, suddenly create a lot more competitors. Suddenly, corporations are losing control over their products. They're losing control over their brands. They're losing control over their distribution system. And so one of the ways of fighting it is to merge with your competitors and try to get as big as you possibly can. But that bigness by itself is a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of strength. It's defensive 
rather than offensive. They're trying to protect themselves against technologies, disintermediating them from their customers, disintermediating them from their products. Um, And so, yes, John, it's right that we have very large corporations. But two things to remember. Number one, the way they view themselves is changing. And number two, they're under constant attack uh, from technology platform. And those attacks will become much more, uh, much deeper and much more severe over the next uh, five to 10 years. So it sounds to me like perhaps the startups, the, the disruptors, are the ones that might be able to crack through this, this financialization and this, uh, the zombie companies that are so dependent on cheap debt. Is that part of the, the calculus there? Yes, it is. But it also has a downside. And a downside is that new technological platforms are not as capital intensive. They don't require as much capital. They have almost unlimited scalability, which means you can attack multiple industries at the same time. Uh, And they don't employ a lot of people. So you find a more traditional corporations is where people actually get their living from. Uh, Whereas technological platform, they improve the products, they innovate, they deliver lower prices to consumers, but they don't employ people by nature. Uh, And so one of the balancing items, public sector, one of the balancing roles the private sector, public sector would need to do is how do you manage a decline of tangible companies, companies that run factories, good roads, machinery, employ people against new disruptive platforms, which deliver better products, faster, uh, more innovative products, lower prices, causing disinflation, by the way, reducing prices across the board, attacking companies that employ people. So how do you balance the two without causing significant dislocation in the labor market? Now, one thing we describe in the book uh, is that um, the, the, corporate, the, the, the labor market already died. Uh, there, there is almost no uh, job pro- progression paths Uh, professions gradually are disintegrating. More and more jobs are either part-time, casual. Uh, It could be a gig job. At least 20, 25% of jobs in our gig jobs are of various description. How people get paid uh, changes. So we have a major shift uh, occurring and how people getting employed, what do they do? How do they derive their income compared to the industrial age? of the 19th and 20th century. So governments and public sector has a very important function here. You need to encourage innovation. You need to encourage inventiveness. And, but at the same time, you can't see a very significant and fast displacement of the labor force. Yeah, okay, so there's something that, that keeps coming back to my mind here, and it, maybe it is because I'm one of the millennials and need to, to defend the generation a little bit. I'm the, one of the oldest of the millennials. You know, you talked about how millennials, Gen Z, are pushing back against this demonization of the public sector that came from the boomers. And I think there's a sort of a division, two forces pushing against each other that I can't get past. So in some ways, I agree with you that I'll use Gen Z because I think they're actually the young people. Millennials are all too old now. Gen Z is pushing back. They want better environmental controls. They want, uh, you know, to be able to afford a house. All of these things that perhaps the government intervention could help or better public policy could help drive. But to me, the big division, the, the, 
millennial Gen Z argument or protest against the boomers was that the GFC, the Iraq war, houses that are outrageously expensive, that all comes from the boomers and government action itself. And so I feel like there isn't that trust with the public sector that they feel like they're sort of in bed with the boomers and driving the wedge rather than trying to solve it. How do you see that? I think survey after survey in Western societies, I must say, I haven't seen many surveys of millennials and Z generations in emerging markets like India or China. So what we're discussing essentially is more developed economies. But in survey after survey, in most of the Western societies, it is clear that millennial and Z generations trust public sector much more than baby boomers or X generations ever had. There is no doubt, survey after survey, millennials and Z generations looking to community for support. They want to co-op the government to solve the problems rather than baby boomers who wanted to get the government away from them as far as possible. And so, and so what you find is that, uh, for example, in the US, 71% of millennials and Z generation believe that um, it's a role of the government to create community and foster community rather than encouraging independence. Now, that's a radically different views to what the previous generation actually, actually held. So, so you find, um, and you're absolutely right, um, what differentiates various generations is really the experiences. Uh, in the Western world, uh, 60s and 70s and to some extent 50s were periods of general prosperity. Uh, it was a period of middle class creation. It was a period uh, where education was very widely spreading through community. It was experience of creation of middle class, you know, your suburban lords. It was experience of, you know, your picket faces, uh, picket fences, you know, two, two kids and a wife and a dog. Uh, it was experience of uh, uh, where college education or university degrees were conferring benefits. Um, and, and, so, and so baby boomers didn't feel that they need the government to protect them. They, in fact, wanted more freedom. On the other hand, millennium and Z generation encountered different issues. They've encountered, uh, as you correctly said, 9-11. They encountered unwinnable wars in the Middle East. They encountered global financial crisis. They're seeing that college education or university degrees no longer confirm the same benefits as what their parents had. They're seeing the job and career paths largely disintegrating in front of them. They're not quite sure exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to go forward in this world. <clears throat> and so their views are shaped by those experiences. Uh, and therefore, they're much closer to their grand-grandparents, people who experience hyperinflations, people who experience a great crisis of 1930s, people who experienced World War I and World War II. And when there were adults in 50s and 60s and into 70s, they felt that the government and public sector provided an, an incredibly important guardrails for society. And I feel millennials in Z feeling sort of the same way, that they need to co-opt, they need help, uh, they would like community spirit, they're much more sharing 
uh, than the baby boomers ever were. And so they clearing the paths for much more aggressive public sector. Uh, and so the question then becomes, how do you use that public sector for good rather than evil? The other thing very quickly to highlight, uh, John, that artificial intelligence, in addition to that, not only disintermediates manual labor, but increasingly it's disintermediate higher value skills. And over time, it might even allow you to have state planning to an extent that, you know, Lenin uh, and the Russian communists never felt was possible. Well, Victor, look, some some welcome optimism there, um, talking about how we can find a way to influence the public sector for good. And, and I think something from an economic perspective that's really front of mind is the question of valuing environmental resources. So we have, you know, we can see that renewables like solar energy are um, price competitive with fossil fuels now, purely because they've just pushed through, pushed through, pushed through. But what we don't do is we don't put a price on pollution. We haven't got a price on emissions. You know, Europe have a, a carbon trading scheme, but it, it was defeated by political terms in Australia, and, and it seems a long way off in the US. How do you think the better valuing of, it, of environmental resources will fit into this Gen Z and millennial push for using the public sector for good? I think it will be increasingly becoming very significant. You know, when Richard Nixon in 1968 was talking about silent majority, uh, this is what, uh, by the way, Donald Trump uh, is deploying as well today. Um, Richard Nixon was absolutely right. Uh, baby boomers in 1968 were about 35% of the electorate. So the silent majority was silent majority. <laughs> but by late 70s, uh, baby boomers were the majority of the population. That's why, that's why you had on their backs, Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher, deregulation of the capital markets, product markets, labor markets on a global basis, including Bob Hawke and Paul Keating and all the rest of them came to power on the back of baby boomers. What is happening today <clears throat> is that millennials in Z in most countries are about 35% of the electorate. Now, very similar the way it was 1968. So when Donald Trump talks about silent majority, he might be right. <clears throat> there is a silent majority, just like it was for Richard Nixon. But somewhere between 2025 and 2030, millennials in Z will be the majority in most uh, developed countries. And I think what you're seeing today is a push, gravitational pull from millennials in Z, just like you had a gravitational pull in 1968 from uh, baby boomers. But baby boomers were not dominant in 1968 yet. And millennials are not dominant in 2020 yet. But in another five to 10 years, they will be. Now, what that means is that they're already exercising a, a pull, a gravitational pull, but it's not yet sufficient to shift you dramatically. So I think environmental con concerns I think public sector, role of the public sector, <clears throat> how private sector and corporate sector sees itself, all going to evolve over the next five, 10 years. The reason I didn't spend much time in my book at all on environment, not because it is not important, I think it's very, very important, is just in immediate future, 
technology, technological evolution, information age, and financialization just overwhelming the system. And right now, uh, dealing with disintermediation of the labor market, disintermediation of the corporate market, uh, over-financialization and its toxic impact, collapse of risk-free rates, collapse of returns, the need to maintain asset prices are just so overwhelming the system that there is almost nothing left for anything else. It doesn't mean it's not important. It is very important. It's just that there is too many things on the go. But as we progress five years, 10 years out, two or three things will happen. Number one, technology keeps on progressing. As you correctly highlighted, marginal costs of a lot of new technologies are getting lower and lower. <clears throat> In fact, they're getting almost to zero. And a lot of new technologies are much more environmentally friendly uh, than what traditional industrial age technologies used to be. Uh, and that will continue progressing. Uh, number two, um, the, the, how companies are valued in the stock market, how a bond market functions also is changing. I think within five, 10 years, not paying taxes will be regarded as bad, not good. Polluting will be regarded as very bad not good. And so companies increasingly will be rated more on their ESG profile, if, if you know ESG, environmental, societal, governments issues, rather than just necessarily earnings per share that those companies are delivering. Uh, and the third thing that will happen, as I said earlier, millennials in Z will dominate. And, and so to me, I look at it as a, as a progression. Some countries are ahead of the curve. Um, some places are behind the curve. That always happens like that. You never have uniform transition. But eventually, everybody will be on the same page. As I said, one of the key questions is, how would the government perceive its role? How will it fund itself? Where would it get the money? Uh, a lot of politicians believe that public sector debt uh, is the debt that future generations owe. That is completely inappropriate way of looking uh, at public sector debt and how public sector finance itself. Victor, that's a, a big statement to finish on there and, and I could dig into it, but um, we, we've already looped around a few times. So look, I'm going to leave that there. I think that's really powerful because I do want to save some time because there's this huge tome, the, the first half of your book, which talks about uh, these three empires, China, Russia and the Ottoman Empire, and their inability, their decisions they made, which closed them off for the rest of the world, and in some ways uh, answers the very sort of broad question of why Western democracies are developed in income terms so much more than these other empires. Obviously a huge issue. You went really deep on the history um, and there were some incredible insights there. But just to, to keep it focused and to, to give my listeners sort of some insights into your views on, on what you found out through all your research. As I said, these countries like China closed themselves off in the 1400s, despite being so advanced technologically, they could easily have progressed with global domination. They chose not to, they closed their borders. But now amid the information age, is that changing? Could an empire like China make a comeback? Absolutely, John. One of the lessons of the last 500 years clearly was that freedom, freedom to move, freedom exchange ideas, goods, services, trade, 
was the King's Road to Development Progress Wells. It basically explains why those three ancient empires collapsed and why this obscure little peninsula, European peninsula, uh, actually become the dominant force in the world. However, information age is rewiring our society uh, and societies globally. Um, it started in 1971. We can debate exact timing or a month or a day. It started in 1971, in my view. Um, and, uh, but, but the impact of information age has really been accelerating over the last two decades. That's what happens with revolutions. They start slowly and build over decades. And it takes at a minimum two or three generations to go through, whether it was the first industrial revolution, second industrial revolution, or whether it is um, the information age. And the new information age is radically different. Um, McKinsey, for example, estimated that the impact of information age is about 3,000 times the, uh, uh, the impact of industrial revolution. And remember, industrial revolution changed the world. They completely buried three ancient empires. They created a brand new order. And information revolution is 3,000 times the impact. It basically changes everything we do how we work, how we get compensated, how we educated, the nature of labor inputs, the nature of capital inputs, how society interacts, the role of technology, the role of public sector. It changes everything in our life. And in the next 20, 30 years, will be the pinnacle of that transition before a very, very different world will emerge. And so the question becomes what that new world would look like. If, in fact, uh, we no longer keep productivity drivers, i.e. humans no longer perform the same role, uh, if skilling and very narrow specializations, which what industrial age demanded, is no longer the answer, if, in fact, human and traditional capital inputs becoming less and less uh, relevant to the process, then why do we need uh, PhDs in computer science? Why do we need journalists? Why do we need painters? Why do we need uh, writers? Uh, why do we need uh, truck drivers? Why? And, so, and so what it does, it redefines the nature and role of humanity very comprehensively. But what it also does, it enables the state to get an, up, an apparatus uh, or a system which can be very abusive and very domineering. In the past, the view was technology liberates, but it is possible that technology can be used to enslave as well. Uh, and uh, people think uh, technology is good, it's progress. Uh, but it can be used for good or evil just as easily. Technology has no moral fiber. It has no moral compass. Uh, and so one of the key uh, challenges, I think, going forward, that uh, whether you look at innovation, whether you look at inventiveness, whether you look at central planning versus free markets, technology increasingly can do all of that more efficiently, more effectively, faster than human beings can. Uh, and in that respect, then becomes a question, if a professor at the university suddenly is restricted from exchanging views publicly with others in his field, does it matter when artificial intelligence and computers increasingly will be doing more and more research? Probably not. 
Uh, the same applies to the freedom of private sector to generate prices in the marketplace. If in fact we can do exactly the same, if not better, by using artificial intelligence and computers, could state allocation of resources actually become better? And you can see how those sorts of answers could lead you to very despotic societies, almost like a Roman circus where you distribute, uh, where you entertain people in circuses and distribute free bread, uh, rather than having free societies with interactions. And so that becomes one of the keys. So anybody who expected countries like Russia or China to become more liberal over the last 20 or 30 years have been disappointed. And I think they will continue to be disappointed because technology does not necessarily lead to freedom. And so for the first time in 500 years, freedom might not be the prerequisite for success, either wealth or income or even maybe happiness. Uh, and that's to me, is the biggest issue we would need to resolve in the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Well, in your book, you mentioned that uh, China is dependent on the innovation of the West. Um, and that that comes from the creativity that I would I would uh, you know base around having freedom, uh, freedom to share ideas, freedom to think, and freedom to take risk to have outsized gains. So if you know, as you said, Chinese don't have as many patents uh, or PhDs or you know the companies that are really innovating, is that not a simple proof that you need freedom for innovation? And and even if we do have robots doing all of these jobs. It's human ingenuity that built them. And can we assume that AI will, will be able to innovate in the same way that liberal democratic uh, humans have been able to? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, there, there is a huge difference between inventiveness and innovation. Uh, for example, Apple didn't invent anything. Um, if you think of for Google, they did not invent anything. They innovate, and they're very good innovation companies. Inventiveness is a creation of something brand new. And up until now, humans were the only ones that were capable and are capable of inventiveness. And for inventiveness, you do need freedom. And that's why almost any intellectual, almost all intellectual breakthroughs belong to the West. They do not belong to China. Chinese companies and Chinese, and Chinese uh, society is very good today in innovation. In other words, they improve whatever was already proven in the realms of science. Uh, but they're not very good at creating new breakthroughs. And so they are dependent, still dependent, on the pool of knowledge that the Western societies, particularly the United States, generated over the last 50 to 100 years. Now, the question then becomes, um, have we now invented almost everything we need, at least for the time being? In other words, most of the things today that we take, we use, we invented more than 50 years ago. A lot of other inventiveness have not been innovated, have not yet found their way to people. Because remember, it takes decades for inventiveness to become innovation. And so if we invented a lot, but we're not using it, Things like gene slicing and free sequencing, we can do it today. Society decides not, decided not to. A lot of other technologies are available today. Society decided, for whatever reason, cultural or otherwise, that they don't want to pursue those technologies going forward. So science already proven a lot more than what corporates are today doing. Uh, and so if you say that the 
a bank of inventiveness is relatively full, then China can just innovate. Uh, and to innovate with artificial intelligence in particular, what you need is a lot of capital and what you need is a lot of data. And remember, China doesn't have any privacy or other restrictions that data companies face in the Western society. So their data companies and their AI companies have a lot more information to work with. And that's why they saw getting so much ahead of, ahead of everybody else. So right now, the argument that I tried to put in the book, that we probably have enough inventiveness, uh, at least for the time being. But uh, what we need is a lot more inventions. Uh, and to do that, you need data. And China is a Saudi Arabia of data. The same way as Saudi Arabia is a king of oil, uh, the China is a king of data. And so they have the basis to continue to grow. Now, the next stage becomes 20 years, 30 years from now, when we start approaching singularity. And that is when artificial intelligence become much more flexible than what it is today. Um, it is quite possible that even inventiveness might not necessarily be the province of the human mind. Uh, and at that point in time, that was my argument. Uh, why should the professor have uh, access to his um, colleagues uh, on the other side of the world, for example? Maybe we don't need it. Uh, and, and so you're totally correct. Today, inventiveness belongs to human. It will continue to be so for decades to come. The question is whether we invented enough, uh, at least for the time being, so innovation can take over from inventiveness, at least for the next 10 years. And beyond that, and beyond that, whether in fact artificial intelligence can become flexible enough in decades to come uh, that even human ability to invent will, will be degraded. That's great, Victor. I think the differentiation between innovation and inventiveness is, is a really important one. I hadn't quite seen that specific uh, dividing line, but I think that's really powerful. And look, we've been chatting for a while now and I will let you go, but I think for my listeners that have come this far on the journey, I think they'd, they'd love to know a little bit more about you and, and why you wrote your book and, and how your career brought you to this point of, of being part historian, part economist, but, you know, working for a big uh, investment bank, Macquarie Bank in Hong Kong. Yeah, you know, why did you write the book and, and can you tell us a bit about your career? Well, I was born in the old uh, Soviet Union uh, under the communist system. And uh, in my early years, I was educated as a uh, Marxist economist uh, at the university where I attended. Um, I left Soviet Union in the late 1970s, arriving in Australia. Uh, that welcomed me as a, as a refugee. Uh, I went to study at the University of Sydney and University of New South Wales. I worked in Australia for many years uh, in um, accounting, in finance, uh, in banking. Uh, and then I moved on to various other places. I lived and worked in New York, in London, in Moscow, in Hong Kong for various investment banks. Uh, and I covered everything from uh, politics to geopolitics, to finance, to markets, to stocks, equities, fixed income, uh, to capital flows. Um, and over the years, I felt that uh, people are focusing far too much on the short term. They're fact, focusing far too much on uh, signals that private sector generates, even though uh, increasingly, even as uh, um, as early as 1990s, it was become obvious that the system is changing, 
I felt that people don't fully appreciate how much central banks and their function is changing. Um, I felt also people don't appreciate how technology is changing. I used to be a technology analyst in 1990s, and certainly the promise of 1990s uh, uh, took uh, many years to, 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 to be delivered. But certainly a couple of decades later, it's far closer to delivery than it was during the dot-com, for example, in 2000. And so all these ideas come together for me, both in my daily work, and I felt that combining it and showing um, where we can take the world, how we can make it better, how we can actually transit from point A to point B. Because remember, every time we have a dislocation, whether it was the first industrial revolution, second industrial revolution, or information age, we almost always had wars. We almost always had geopolitical and social tensions, which were extreme. Uh, and I think the objective uh, we should have in our mind uh, is not stopping the progress. You can't do that. But finding a way of navigating the next two or three decades without having war, without having massive social dislocation. The unfortunate side effect could be that one or two generations uh, might find themselves highly disoriented. Again, that's not unusual. That's what happened to Luddites in early 1800s. That's what happened to factory workers in 1870s. It's not so, it's not unusual in history that a generation or two might be disoriented. Uh, and, 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 the, and the question is, how do you, how do you progress? How do, how do you navigate that, both from economic perspective, from environmental perspective, from social perspective, political freedom, uh, that, that you can actually get to the next stage uh, without having dislocation. So I guess it's my experience of well over three decades uh, of looking at those issues and having been educated both in the communist and the Western system, uh, I guess gives me a different perspective. Now, Victor, my final question is always asking my guests for a book recommendation. And of course, yours is a great one that I, that I hope all of my listeners uh, will try and find. It's called The Great Rupture. Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. And now I was quite amazed at the end of every chapter, there was dozens and dozens of references. So you've read so widely, but in our conversation, you know, I hope you've got a bit of a, a specific perception on, on what my listeners are interested in. Are there any titles that you think you'd like to recommend that, uh, uh, that my audience should read? I, I, I don't want to be immodest, but I, I, I'm never really part of the reason I wrote this book I never really found any book that combines all of those elements together. There are very good futuristic books, uh, in a sense, uh, looking into the future and see how technology and societies are going to evolve. So, for example, Yuval Harari um, uh, trilogy on the human race is incredibly good. Uh, there are various trilogies, uh, also trilogies, finally enough, by Francis Fukuyama, who are very, very good. Uh, but again, they don't address some of the finance, uh, economics questions, uh, in my view. Uh, they don't address the role of central banks. They don't address the generational change either. Uh, then there are very good uh, technological books. Uh, for example, Martin Ford. Uh, book on robotics. Uh, there is a very good Bernstein and McCarthy book from MIT. 
how technology is likely to evolve, but they're not addressing political or social or economic aspects of it. They're just focusing very much on technology. And there are very traditional books that show why society succeeded and failed in the past. One of the best ones will be Darren Osamoglu book on uh, why nations fails and a narrow corridor. Uh, they basically describe what happened over the last 500 years and what actually was successful, what hasn't been. But the challenge I had is actually finding anything that tries to combine all of those elements into one picture. And as I said, I'm guilty that one major aspect I have not included uh, was environment because I felt I was dealing with so many other issues uh, that uh, you, I, just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Any, 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 I couldn't go beyond that. Um, so there are very good futuristic books, very good technology book, very good political science book, uh, very good books on the uh, past successes and failures. And as I said, I, I just couldn't find a single one that actually combines that. There are some good books also on the debt and debt overhead or overhang. Uh, Ed Turner, um, runner-up to be governor of Bank of England, uh, wrote a tremendous book uh, on, on the debt uh, and the impact of debt. So, so, but as I said, I, I just couldn't find. One area maybe I will mention very quickly is that basic income guarantee or universal income guarantee uh, has become, has gone mainstream. Uh, whereas only five, ten years ago, it was derogatorily known as a magic monetary or modern monetary theory. Um, I think it's gone uh, mainstream. Um, it's been accepted incredibly widely as one of the remedies that societies might need to adopt. And there is a whole plethora now of uh, very good books discussing uh, that particular aspect as well. Look, so, so far reaching. I really appreciate that. And I think your point that you, you couldn't find any books that tied all of those elements together. You know, I think that that is sort of the, the generalist view. And, and that's something that I've always struggled with myself, trying to specialize, but realizing, no, I am a generalist. I am, as you, interested in the economics, but also the technology and the history and the political science. So I think that's why this one is probably going to be my my longest podcast episode yet because there's so many elements and I'm so interested in it all. So look, really appreciate that. There's lots of book titles there. I'll put all of them in the show notes on my website so people can find some links to all of that. But now I'd better let you go, Victor. Thank you so much. We sort of went around in a, in a few little circles, but I think that's the way it is when you're talking about history and, and the future of humanity. It's always going to be, uh, it's never going to be linear. So look, I think if people have made it this far, they should definitely read the book because it's really engaging. But thank you. Thank you very much, John.